Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today is episode number 404, Leading at the Highest Level, with Lieutenant General Robert Kaslin. Of course, it was a total surprise by all of us. Being in the Pentagon and in the Department of Defense was a surprise. So we saw the plane going into the World Trade Center, and I had a TV in my office, and I was on the outer ring on the Joint Staff, and... Uh, as soon as I saw the second plane go in, there were about five or six of us watching it. I said, the next next target is going to be a command center. And 18 minutes later, it was the Pentagon. The alarm goes off. They're telling us to evacuate. And so we do. Then they started telling us to all to go home. And I said, there's no way we're going home. And then we snuck around them and got, actually got back in the building. And once we got back in the building, then we started helping out. Well, it is always intimidating speaking with a flag officer. And that all said, General Kaslin made that so easy. He's such a gracious man. Uh, he served for over 43 years in the military, including being superintendent at West Point. Um, he was at the Pentagon on 9-11 he snuck back in to assist with fighting fires and ensuring that his colleagues were safe. He has no shortage of unbelievable experiences in the military. After the military, he went on to become the president at the University of South Carolina, so continued leading at the highest level in a civilian capacity. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about mistakes he made in his own transition out of the Army. You've heard them before, but it's reassuring maybe to hear them from someone at his level. We hear we talk about the differences and similarities between military leadership, academic leadership, we talk about what it was like leading the University of South Carolina through COVID-19. And then I really appreciate the general's candor. We talked about his recent resignation from the school and just learning about that situation. And I think there's some great takeaways there for anyone aspiring to lead at a high level. And then we talk about comfort zone. And I'm really appreciating, in contrast to a lot of things we talked previously, this sense of really being out of your comfort zone, being willing to fail, make mistakes, and to recover. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, including over 403 episodes just like this one. You'll also find a link to the General's personal website, as well as his book, The Character Edge. And he does mention an upcoming book that you can keep an eye out for. We'll let you know in the newsletter when that comes out. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with Lieutenant General Bob Caslin. Joining me today in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, my guest is General Bob Caslin. Welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Hey, thanks, Justin. It's really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Honored to be with you, and I'm looking forward to it. We had a conversation for listeners prior to this, and I'm always curious, you know, how to even refer to someone with General Kaslin's background. And he said, Bob for civilians and general for a military audience. But since we're a show about transitioning out of the military, I'll use Bob, but I have to just kind of name for myself that it still feels irreverent. And to give us listeners a sense of why it feels irreverent, here's a quick, very abbreviated bio 
video on him. He is the former president of the University of South Carolina and the president of the University of South Carolina System, as well as the 59th superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He also serves as higher echelon special advisor on executive leadership and character development. In his 43 years of military service in the United States Army, he has done far too much to ever encompass in a brief bio, and we're going to touch on those things, including an unbelievable role in 9-11 and in many other situations. So let me start off by asking you, you have many public bios out there. What's not in the bio that you would want listeners to know about you? Uh, Well, I'm a man of faith, number one. And number two, I love my wife more than anything else and my children and my grandchildren. So I have five grandchildren and they're phenomenal. You know, they... (laughs) They really give you something to get up for every single day and to be of an influence in their life just means an awful lot. But, uh, you know, that's probably something that you don't normally see when you talk about family, but family is so tremendously important to all of us here in, in the Castle family. Mm. How long have you and your wife been married now? Um, <laughs> Rounded number. So I think it's 43 years. Yes. Wow. That yeah. might be one of the most impressive things as well, to have a marriage thriving for that long. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you is you've had an incredible 43-year military career and you've commanded at every possible level. As you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? I guess I'm most proud of the young men and women that I was able to lead in peace and in war and friends that you had made, the ability to be of influence in their life. So many of them, even recently in some of the crisis with the University of South Carolina, I think we'll talk about it later, have come out of the woodwork. And it just really shows that you had the ability to be of influence. I guess materially, I would just say that after 9-11, I was on the joint staff and I had the responsibility to write the, the Secretary of Defense's strategy for the Department of Defense for the War on Terrorism. And that was integrated into the national strategy in the war on terror. And in that capacity, I got to go to the White House and the White House sit room and sit there in the sit room with the president, the vice president and all the cabinet members. Just really incredible experience to see how all that, how they thought through the days after 9-11. I guess the other thing I'm really most proud of was I was a division commander during the end of the surge up in northern Iraq, which was really a hostile and volatile place. Anybody that had served in Iraq during that time knows what I'm really talking about. Being in charge of 23,000 great Americans who were committed and dedicated to give their life to their country and having the responsibility for their success and the success of our country uh, is something I'll always remember and always treasure. Mm. It's just even, you know, I'm 10 years out of the military and it's difficult to fathom that level of responsibility because, you know, even though we've had on the show leaders of Fortune 500 companies and people who oversee massive groups of people, nothing to the extent that you're responsible for, like, which is literally life and death situations. And, and yeah, I just want to name that. I can't even imagine what it is like to operate consistently at that level. And maybe, you know, one thing that just comes up, because I know we have a lot of high achievers in the midst of those situations of operating in these intense environments with such steep repercussions. How did you remain nourished and refreshed? Like amidst all of that, how did you maintain balance or maintain some sense of grounding underneath you from which to operate? Well, you know, my like I said, I'm a man of faith, and my faith, <laughs> I rested on my faith an awful lot as uh, we went through the ups and downs and the successes and, and the failures. We also had a phenomenal team. So you, you just don't go through this by yourself. You, 
Even though you're the person on top and it's very lonely up there, you have a team that you just really get close to and you talk to and you really think issues through and in a non-threatening environment, you encourage people to come up with ideas, thoughts. You treasure and encourage and edify every single one of them. You make people feel good about themselves while you're in the middle of all this crisis that's going on. And when they feel good about themselves, that they're contributing, that they have a purpose and they understand what that purpose is, then their commitment to paying the price for success it has no limits. You know, so when you have a team that's so close like that, really foundation of shared hardships, you really can accomplish, in my opinion, you can accomplish anything as long as that team's there. You also have uh, some really tough times as you go through that, and I learned just really to categorize it and or catalog it. So, you know, your life is, now I'm working on this, I've got to put this aside and then focus on this. And the ability to catalog it, an incident put it on the shelf and then move on to something else is, a, I believe, a skill for senior leaders that they really have to do. Because if, if you just let everything in, have an impact on you and you can't let it go, then it really gets confusing and you have some challenges, mental health type challenges as, as a result. So I just felt that one of the things when things were good and when things were not so good, you just accept it, you learn from it, and then you got to move on. And tugging on this thread, you said, you know, it's lonely at the top. I'm just picturing in, you know, overseas, you're away from family and you are at the top. How do you find connection or support when you are like, I'm just trying to imagine for others who are, albeit in a smaller scale, lonely at the top. Like, how did you get through those times of loneliness or where did you seek camaraderie and connection? Yeah. Well, you know, with your really close friends. So as a, like, for example, a division commander has a chief of staff and he's got two deputy commanders. He's got a command sergeant major. And that really that executive team is really close. So you, like I said, you're out there together. You share hardships. You share meals. You break bread together. You have the daily updates, the daily meetings. You sit down and think about where, where the uh, intelligence is going in the future. How do you be, how do you have to deal with it? You have a strategy. You're implementing the strategy. You look at each one's alliance of efforts. You make the necessary assessments. And, and this small group working together is essential. But in any particular crisis, the most important element for success is trust. Trust throughout the entire organization from the top all the way down to the bottom. And the best way to build trust is to be as transparent and communicative as possible because transparency allows people to really see for themselves what's really going on. And it also allows them as constituents to be part of the solution. And when they feel that they have an understanding to the same degree of understanding that you do because you're transparent, then they are the ones that will be able to feel comfortable enough to really go forward and plow through it and help you get the right solution sets that are necessary for your success. I think that's so great, the realization of how much transparency matters and how that allows people to come alongside and contribute and help out. But it really, I'm just picturing myself on other sides of that equation. It is like anytime a leader has been more transparent and I have more visibility into the problem, like I feel brought into the solution. I really like that. Well, it's also risky. There's a lot, there's a lot of risk. Because everybody's got an opinion. So when you're transparent and you think through thoughts and ideas and you start opening and sharing and discussing them, I mean, there's going to be a lot of naysayers out there really amplified by social media, anonymous social media that can just cancel culture that's going on in our country today. Mm -hmm. So that's your when you are transparent, you are making yourself vulnerable. 
And that's what makes a lot of leaders uncomfortable about being transparent. They like to hold their cars close to their chest. And, and I just felt that if you're going to build trust, you got to be transparent. you got to open it up and be communicative and really have good, strong dialogue on all the different issues that are out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is that I know a lot of our listeners have joined the military after 9-11. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about that day in the Pentagon. Well, you know, of course, it was a total surprise by all of us. Being in the Pentagon and the Department of Defense was a surprise. So we saw the plane going into the World Trade Center, and I had a TV in my office, and I was on the outer ring on the joint staff. And as soon as I saw the second plane go in, there were about five or six of us watching it. And I said, the next target is going to be a command center. And 18 minutes later, it was the Pentagon. So when the plane hit the Pentagon, if the guy was really had his act together and knew where, where the key leadership was in the Pentagon, on the joint staff where I was, it was two sides over in the Pentagon from where the plane actually went in. And that's where you had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the entire Joint Staff. Right above the chairman was the Secretary of Defense. Right above the Secretary of Defense were the secretaries and the Chiefs of Staffs of the services. And uh, for the grace of God, if he had gone right there, it would have really taken out the leadership. Nevertheless, when the plane hit the Pentagon, of course, there's great confusion. We don't know what's going on. The alarm goes off. They're telling us to evacuate. So we do. And then there was another plane that was reported to be hijacked. This is the one that went into the field in Pennsylvania. And they knew that plane was on a course coming directly back into Washington, D.C. The exact target was still un- unsure, but they're telling us to get down, lay down on the ground. We're in the parking lot, <laughs> laying down, waiting for the second plane to come. Of course, it never did. It went into the field in Pennsylvania, as I said. And then they started telling us all to go home. And I said, there's no way we're going home. We stood there outside watching the Pentagon burn. A helicopter, medevac was coming in. And I realized right then and there, I said, life as we know, it's going to change. And here we are 20 years later. So I said, let's get going. So we got a bunch of guys in from my group, my staff section, and about four or five of us. And we went back into the Pentagon. <laughs> well, we tried to. And then they said, no, you can't go back in. I said, we got to go back in. <laughs> they said, no, you're not. Go home. Of course, you know, nothing was working. You couldn't go into the parking lot because where my vehicle was parked, it was just right along the side of the building where the plane actually went in. I didn't think I had any my vehicle left anymore. Anyway, so we went back out, and then we found out where all the guard security was, and then we snuck around them and got actually got back in the building. And once we got back in the building, then we started helping out, you know. And I was with a Navy captain. This guy was incredible. So the, anybody in the Navy knows how to fight fires. Because that's what they train them on a boat. If you're in the middle of the ocean and you have a, your ship's on fire, you know, you better learn how to fight that fire. So everybody understands. So what this guy did is he ran out to one of the fire department trucks and got a smoke detector to measure the degree of smoke and how toxic it was. So he's starting to go around and some of the guys who were still guards were in some pretty bad positions inhaling a lot of that toxic smoke. And he got, he got told them, you know, you're relieved of duty. Get out of here. And then he actually, believe it or not, went up to where the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Rumsfeld was. And he going in rooms, measuring smoke levels in each one of the rooms. And he opened the door and there's Rumsfeld with his whole staff having a meeting. And he puts the detector in the middle of the meeting, right there in the middle of the table. And it had a high level of toxic in the room. And so Rumsfeld immediately adjourned the meeting and went to another place. He had since said that, he, that this guy had saved his life. But we were going around shutting off all the cafeterias, had all the deep fry, you know, hot dogs were, uh, were bursting. And 
we went into the courtyard and assisted with the evacuations and all of that. And then being on the joint staff, we had the responsibility to stand up the command center and establish communications with the White House and with the president. So I was fortunate enough to be in there as we stood up the command center to start making an assessment of what's going on across the country. You know, what's the cause of this? What can we expect in the future? And then to start coordinating relief and assistance. And then, of course, established communication with the White House and the vice president was there. And all of that was pretty interesting. So we stayed. I stayed there most of the night and uh, finally went home really, really late at night. And I called my wife. I said, I'm going to walk out to my truck. My truck was three days old, by the way. (laughs) And I don't know if it's still there or not. But sure enough, as I walked out there where my new pickup truck was, as I was walking up to it, all the cars were just covered with soot from the smoke and all that. There were airplane parts all over the place. The FBI was already marking them with engineer tape. 30 yards away from my truck was an airplane wheel. So if anybody says it wasn't an airplane, I could tell you with my own eyes. I know what an airplane wheel looks like. And I thought my truck was just wrecked. It was actually 75 yards from where the plane went in. And uh, for whatever reason, it was when I got there, it was covered with soot. And I started wiping it off. I thought my windows would be all smashed, but there was not a scratch on it for whatever reason. Thank God. And so I was able to get out of there and then drive home and came back in the next day. So that was 9-11 for me. That's what we had experienced. I can't even imagine the emotions going on for country, for your family, for your own safety, for your colleagues, like your coworkers' safety. What enabled you amidst all of that noise and what I'm guessing was fear and sadness and uncertainty to literally sneak into the Pentagon? It's not even like you're running into a burning building. Like you have to fight your way to get into the burning building to help people. Like what trained you to have the presence of mind and the selflessness to do that? Well, it's, it was a no-brainer. I mean, <laughs> there was a problem set out there, and you're a leader, so you go in there and do what you can to help solve the problem and start working on it. You know, I, I mean, I, you don't think about your personal situation, your personal safety over the needs of the urgency of what needed to take place. You, you just kind of, like I said, I catalog it, put it all aside, and I focus on the mission and what you got to do. That's, that's kind of what we did. It's incredible. I'm curious, after 43 years of an unbelievable career in the Army, what was your transition out of the Army like? That's a great question, Justin. I would say it was like a C or a C minus. <laughs> it was not great. I totally underestimated what I needed to do medically, you know, because you live 43 years with your, you know, of course, you have some degree of disability. So your care goes from the active duty to the Veterans Affair. So, you know, here I am trying to say, OK, here's a list of all the problems I have. What's my degree of disability? How do I address some of these? And the amount of energy it took, and I was way behind the power curve on getting all of it done, because every single problem that you have has to be confirmed and verified by the VA, not by the Army, by the VA. So you had to go to VA doctors and VA hospitals across, and I was in West Point, New York, across the state of New York, trying to get all of this confirmed, which I never did. And then, you know, finally I got it all done. But the medical transition is really important and it's something you want to get started on as soon as possible. And just don't take for granted that it's all going to come into place. You really have got to work it all. The other thing was really two things. So you live a life that got great purpose that consumes you with duties and responsibilities into a life that what am I going to do next? So the next purpose is not yet defined. 
and you spend 43 years of your life with purpose, and all of a sudden you're waiting to see what the next purpose is. And that is an emotional sort of transition that you need to be prepared for. Some people will transition immediately, and they already are lined up. They know what they want to do that's already in place, so that as soon as they retire from the military, they can transition right away into their next career path with purpose. Uh, that wasn't the case with me. I did not have something that was yet defined. So I started looking around and, you know, some, doing some consulting and working with higher echelon was one of them. And I enjoyed that. And then all of a sudden I had an opportunity to, I was recruited to the University of Central Florida as an executive vice president. And in that capacity, I really found my purpose because I absolutely loved being the superintendent of West Point, not because of leading West Point, but because of being of influence in the next generation of young men and women who will serve their country. And higher education is similar because you want to be of influence in preparing the next generation of young men and women to serve in their communities and the corporate worlds, and higher education enabled them to do that. So I really, when I was at UCF, found my purpose in working with students and preparing them for their future, which then led me to the University of South Carolina as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So that transition took a while to finally get purpose. And the other thing that was really something that I was not necessarily prepared for was being at home with my beautiful wife. And <laughs> so it's not like you come home at six or seven o'clock in the evening, you know, have dinner and sit down for a while and then get up and then you're out of the house before she wakes up in the morning. You know, it, you're there all the time now, you know, so it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment for her, and it was an adjustment for me, but we have come to really appreciate and love each other and being close to each other 24 hours a day, not just uh, you know, seven or eight hours a day. So, so those are some of the transitions that I remember that are great lessons learned. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I just want to underscore what you were saying about the medically. I've heard that from a lot of guests, really not underestimating that process and taking that seriously, any sort of disability. The purpose piece comes up repeatedly. And I really like the way you said that if your purpose consumes you in the military. And then it's unclear after that what your next purpose will be. And then even the nuance of just the practicality of being more around your wife or your family. I imagine that's a big transition. I also wanted to ask you any similarities or differences that stand out to you in building a military operational staff versus an academic one, since you've had very senior roles on both sides of that. Well, you know, leadership and being an effective staff member, there are just some basic leadership principles that are applicable, whether it's in uniform or out of uniform. So, and, you know, in leading large organizations are whether it's a or military organization in uniform or whether it's a civilian organization in academe, they're pretty much the same. So it's at senior levels, for example, you know, would drive me as your strategic plan. So what is your vision? What's the mission to accomplish the vision? What are your strategic priorities that accomplishes your mission? Are your resources aligned to implement them? And then how do you make assessments so that you can modify as you move along? So that's your basic principle of strategic planning that's uh, critical at any level. And that's what I did both at uh, whether I was at West Point or whether I was a division commander or commander at Fort Leavenworth or whether I was uh, president of the University of South Carolina. And that whole effort is really, in my opinion, and this is a leadership principle, a collaborative effort. And it's not one where, as the president, establish a vision and a mission statement and say, here it is, and then expect everybody to just fall in line. So 
the development of the strategic process and the strategic plan is, in my opinion, as important as the plan itself. Because what we did is we went on offsite and spent a lot of day on the offsite the first day just talking about the environment so that we all had a common understanding of what the environment is. And then once you understand the environment, then you say, okay, who are we and what do we want to be? And when you ask those two questions, because who are we will define your values, which will establish your culture, and what do you want to be really defines your vision. Well, as soon as you ask those two questions, you better be prepared for a number of hours of dialogue and discussion. And in that dialogue and discussion, and I'll never forget every time I've done that, as challenging and as challenging as it was to be able to pull all that together, it was an incredible process because colleagues were able to have a voice into determining who we are and what we want to be. And when colleagues have a voice, it goes back to that transparency. When colleagues have a voice, then they feel empowered and then they feel part of the solution. And as a result, they have ownership. And that process establishes the ownership. For, so it's not the president's vision, it's the university's vision. And we all believe and support it. And then you continue to work it and develop it and continue to work and develop it and, you know, and all that sort of thing. So the same process to be able to provide senior level leadership, whether it's military or an academic, I think is pretty much the same, same principles. The one thing that's different, though, unique in the civilian world is that their culture is totally different. In the military, you have a culture where everybody wants to be on the team. There's a degree of respect. And as a result, they... You know, military culture is close. It's that brotherhood and sisterhood that you depend upon each other as a result of shared hardships and things like that. Well, you don't see that on in the civilian side or academe. So to build that cohesiveness in that culture is was really a challenge and was was really difficult. Complicating it is social media that will give anybody and everybody a voice. And social media, you can say or do whatever you want because what matters are not the facts. What matters are how many likes you get. And the more likes you get, the more empowered you are in social media. So you can be some idiot or jerk out there and start saying something and start generating a bunch of likes. And then people start paying attention to it. And then media will follow social media. And, you know, then all of a sudden what's not a story becomes a story as a result. So in social media can become a cesspool. I mean, it's very good. and It's very healthy. And if done right, but it's also can become accessible. Marty Dempsey, who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, wrote a great book. And one of his chapters in his book is called Digital Echo. And he said that, you know, in social media, someone will put something out there in digits and it just reverberates. That's your digital echo. And what matters are likes. And when likes matter and facts don't matter, then the facts, when facts don't matter, the truth becomes distorted. And when the truth becomes distorted, then the trust that is necessary in establishing organizations evaporates. And that's what you'll see with some of the challenges that you find in a culture that enables that type of communication to exist. Couple of things. I really like the framework that you laid out. And what I heard was the who are we and what do we want to be? And going back to your statement about purpose, I think that's a great framework for listeners who are still in the military or even out anyone who's reevaluating their purpose. I feel like that's such a great starting point of being ruthlessly honest about like, okay, who am I and, and what do I want to be? I just love the simplicity of that, but there's a real power there, not just in leading an organization, but in leading oneself 
into a career change. And then, you know, it was interesting to hear you say that too. The truth doesn't matter. It's how many likes you get. And it is like an interesting world to navigate now of when there can be, yeah, like how to even escape from that or how to respond to that. One thing I wanted to ask about was what was it like leading the University of South Carolina through COVID-19? Well, it was like a military operation. Hmm. <laughs> you had to work your way through. So the enemy was the COVID. You know, it was a virus and you had to understand it. I mean, you know, you really have to understand the environment. You have to understand what's going on. And I remember right about, you know, of course, almost a couple of years ago now, right around spring break when everybody had taken off on spring break, we had heard that there was this sort of COVID that was out there on the West Coast and it was migrating across the country. We already saw it in Europe and Italy was challenged with it and some other countries were as well. And as I, we assembled a number of teams, functional teams from the staff. And by assembling the functional teams, a team that would look at, and we were very fortunate. For example, we had a pharmacy school that was able to do testing. We were one of the first schools in the nation to do saliva testing in our own pharmacy so that we can get results in 24 hours, not a week or 10 days later. Then we also had a a school of public health. And in the school of public health, we had epidemiologists. And the epidemiologists are your scientists. They're the ones that really understand public health and public disease. And we would meet like every other day just to understand what's going on with this virus and where is it going. So it's not only to understand where it is, but where is it going? And I'll never forget, I'm not sure if you remember the Princess Diamond cruise ship that had all the problems that were out there. The Princess Diamond cruise ship, right before spring break, we had an R-naught of seven. Well, you know, the R-naught was a coefficient that talked about the transmission between one person and another person. And R-naught of one is one infected person transmitted the virus to another person. In Princess Diamond, you had an R-naught of seven, and they had all kinds of problems. Well, the epidemiologist told me, you know, when everybody comes back from spring break from all over the world, wherever, where they all are, and they come back into this close university environment, you're going to re- you're going to create a, your own Princess Diamond. So we said, we're not going to do that. I mean, for the safety of public health. Well, I'll tell you. So I said, we're going to delay return to, of spring break. You know, we made incremental decisions. We finally went online for the rest of the semester, if you remember, like most universities. But as soon as I did that and I made that decision, the, the, the South Carolina legislator there, they're a bunch of crazy people. I mean, they had a session that condemned what I had done. Little did they know what they were about to get into because they said I was creating a scary situation that was not necessary. Little did they know what was going into. And, you know, it's just a little thinking of what, uh, rather than trying to understand what we're trying to do and where we're going. Nevertheless, you know, with all that negative that was out there, we pressed on and we felt we had to do the right thing. We really built our program around a number of fundamental principles. Principle number one was by far the safety and the health of our students and our faculty and our administration. And second is knowing that we have a close community We are a university that is smack in the middle of the capital city of South Carolina. And there are a lot of vulnerable groups that are out there in that city. We did not want to have the infection in the University of South Carolina spread into the community. So we really had to focus on, look at that and focus on that. And then, of course, we want to keep the health of the university itself, financial health and to keep with its purpose. And regardless of whatever 
modality we use, we were going to deliver education to the highest standard, regardless. So those were our principles, and we abided by those principles, and they were our guiding principles as we worked our way through the pandemic all the way. So we, in the end, grew, they received high praise for what we had done. And I give a lot of credit to my chief of staff as he organized all the different functional teams that looked at this. And we had some incredible people that really worked on on this one great teamwork. I remember our head physician who ran the student health clinic. She was amazing. I remember when it was really, really tense. And of course, we're all just, well, I mean, everybody's kind of working from home at that particular point, but I'm, we're, some of us are still in the office. She's at the health clinic. But I go over to see her because I want to talk to her face to face. I didn't want to talk to her on Zoom. I just, I wanted to look in her eyes to see how she was doing. And I walked over into her office. We were just sitting there talking about it. And then I look over there on the side of the office as her couch and there's a sheet on the couch. I said, Debbie, what are you doing? Are you spending the nights here? And she goes, yes, I am. So it just shows that the degree of dedication of these men and women that were on our team that really understood what those principles were and were able to keep everybody safe. So we stayed, we opened back in the fall. We opened up despite all the challenges. We opened up on time. And contrary to a number of universities across the nation who opened and then immediately closed down and dumped their problem into their local community, I refused to do that. I was not going to shut down. We also, like I said, in crisis, you want to communicate. So we had, I must have done almost 60 or 70 town hall meetings online with parents, with students, with administration, with faculty. Of course, everybody is nervous, but you still have to go on there. And then the media would sit there and listen in on. So it was like an hour town hall meeting. It was an hour. (laughs) And then the media would just write articles and criticize it. But you you just bad. You just don't have to power through it and you do. So that's what we we do. This is just a question off the cuff, but what advice do you have? Because it's just, you know, I've never had to face that sort of public scrutiny and I have seen glimpses of it. And you talk about kind of the cesspool of social media, like you see the ugliness, especially when anonymity is involved. What advice do you have for leaders who are up against that? Is it just to ignore that and just to tune that out? Or how would you advise a leader dealing with a similar challenge to continue and stay a course in the face of media scrutiny, social media scrutiny, and just kind of this general outrage? That's a great question, Justin. So, I mean, in any crisis, you really have to understand the environment and constituent voices, even those that are very ugly, are important to be heard. But they can't dominate your time and your effort, and they cannot dominate how to address them. I mean, you've got to understand what your mission, your purpose, your goals, your objectives, how you're going to achieve them. And you've got to have confidence that you're moving in that direction. You make the necessary assessments that will drive change. But if you react to every single voice that's out there, you're going to be jumping around. You're going to be dealing with the crisis at your feet and not all the opportunities and the lights that all of a sudden sh- uh, show where you need to go instead. Just think about when you've got a fire that's burning at your feet, it kind of consumes you and it consumes your attention and energy. That's what social media will do. You can't let that happen. And then I just ended up not even, it, it got so ugly. I just canceled my accounts and turned it off. You know, I have a person who's like my speechwriter, but also president communications. So she, she did all my communications. I let her read it. And if she felt there was something in there I needed to pay attention to, then she would tell me. But it was such a cesspool. I, <laughs> for my own mental health, the last thing I want to do is just 
read that thing because it would just get depressing. I think there's a powerful lesson in there for everyone. Like, you know, most of us will hopefully not face that sort of level of publicity. You know, I'm certainly some will, but I do think there's a powerful lesson there in listening, but not overweighting all of these things and focusing on the values that you know are right, focusing on the information that you know is right and staying the course that is right and not being distracted because that doesn't serve anyone. So I really appreciate that. I also wanted to make space. I know that you recently resigned as the president of the University of South Carolina. Just wanted to make space if there's anything you wanted to say about that incident. Yeah, no, it's important to, thanks for asking. So it's important to put that in context. So, you know, when I, so I'm kind of an outsider when I was a candidate to be the president. And so when I was interviewed coming from a military background and, you know, I, I was also asked to interview to be the national security advisor for President Trump, although I was not selected HR McMaster was. I'm now branded as being a Trumpist. And then someone told me, I said, when you become the president of the University of South Carolina, you're the second most political person in the state. I said, what was the first? They said the governor. I said, I don't want to be in politics. I have no desire to be in politics whatsoever. Nevertheless, when it was a long story, but the governor was involved in requiring the board to do a vote on me. After they called a failed search, so they brought me back, they did the vote. The vote was 11 in favor, 8 opposed, and 1 that didn't vote. So it's almost like a 50-50 or 55-45. In other words, half the people out there, and I realize this, I was stupid to come back. A lot of people out there just didn't like me, and it was not just on the board. It was within the constituents and the faculty. The faculty voted no confidence. They protested. Faculty members were recruiting students to protest against me. And it was the most hostile environment I've ever been in. And I was really stupid to go go into it, number one. But I said, okay, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to, so that in the almost two years I was there, I was going to be transparent. My objective was to build trust and to build confidence. And I believe we made a lot of progress in doing that. I think the pandemic helped us in building that trust and confidence. So here we are in commencement. And we make the decision to commencement in person. So I'm on, now in the president of the University of South Carolina, the president of the system, as you had said, which includes four regional schools and three more comprehensive four-year schools. And I have to preside at each one of these commencement events. So commencement week has like 15 different events. And then, and then halfway through the week, I realized that the one important message that ought to be communicated to students, we were not talking about it. So. I said, we have to credit the students for their resilience in the pandemic and achieving their degree in the midst of one of the most challenging events in the history of our nation. And they ought to be commended for their resilience. So I got a pile of quotes. I actually gave a couple of commencement speeches. I gave, so I got a quote out of there for, on resilience. I gave it to my speechwriter. She put it into the comments. And then like a lamb to slaughter, I go ahead and read them and it, my fault, I take full responsibility. It was not attributed, but it's not like I intentionally didn't want to attribute it. It was a complete oversight. But nevertheless, when you use somebody else's words, whether they're words of encouragement as they were for whatever purpose without attributing those words, I mean, mean, you committed a crime. (laughs) So in one of these tabloid newspapers, Figured that out, and then they went ahead and just plastered it all over the place. Social media exploded. It got up to the national level. Now, <laughs> so I said to my board chair, I said, hey, sir, you've really got to understand that if this thing goes national or if it hurts the reputation of the university, 
you have lost the most effective element of effective leadership, and that is trust. And when you begin to lose trust among constituents, then your leadership cannot be effective. So this is not about me. This is about the university. And if you have a president who's no longer effective, whether it's his fault or not, then you're going to have to get another president. So I said, listen, I mean, I have no problem with leaving here and resigning whatsoever. I mean, it's a terrible environment as it is in the first place. My wife hated it there. And so he goes, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I said, listen, it it will be a big deal. And sure enough, a couple of days later, it was big enough. So he finally accepted my resignation. But the resignation was simply because it's not about me. It was about the university. And it was about the ability of establishing and losing trust. And when you lose trust as a as a leader, you lose your effectiveness in leadership and you need you need to find somebody else. So, I mean, the right thing to do at that particular point, in my opinion, was to bring in another president instead of me. So that that's the whole story behind it. It is what it is. But it was amazing to watch how the social media and the cancel culture just blew up. And I'm the victim of it. So I am the victim. I understand how that works. And it is not a pretty thing to experience. I appreciate, General, your um, your candor on that. It just makes me feel like for anyone listening, aspiring to lead in a in a big way, what you're describing is one of the facets that goes along with that. And it is I can't imagine navigating that, but to realize that not only are you trying to lead an organization and take care of educating, you know, young adults and chart through the pandemic, like all of these like really big challenges to solve. But you've also got this perception and just sentiment uh, that's out of your control. And it's just it's terrifying, (laughs) to be honest, to hear about that, to think of leading at that level where you have to contend with seems like wildfire that behaves irrationally and you never know where it's going to go. And it doesn't take into account intention or motivation. It just kind of assigns meaning to something that may not even have that meaning I wanted to ask one last question, which was about um, ownership. And, you know, you just just kind of demonstrated that. But I'm just curious, why is taking ownership so important for a leader? Because that's what leaders do. Whenever your organization is successful, you pass that success down to the people who got you there. Whenever something happens wrong or badly with the organization, then the leader takes responsibility for it. So I accept a full responsibility for the oversight in in giving Admiral McRaven attribution for using his words. It was a simple mistake, an honest mistake. And I mean, the first time I realized that we hadn't attributed it was when I read about it in the the tabloid newspaper. Um, But it was my fault. You know, it wasn't my speech. People said, well, it's a speechwriter. I said, well, you know, know, she took the quote that I gave her and along with all the other stuff that she put together and she put it in there. You know, that's what I asked her to do. But, you know, we just were not thinking about attribution and we're stupid. So I was. So I accept the full responsibility, and that's what leaders do. We accept responsibility. We take ownership. When you take ownership of the problem, as a leader, you take ownership of the consequence. And the consequences were not pretty, and they were ugly. But it is what it is. You know, that's what leaders got to do. What's uh, What's next for you? I'm being a, a dad and a grandpa, and I'm absolutely loving it. We'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'm old enough to collect Social Security. The last thing I want to do is to collect Social Security. And uh, we'll see what, what's next. I have lived a life of service to help people prepare for the next level in their lives in some way, some capacity. And so I am still attracted to service, still attracted to this young generation, this next generation. 
and to be able to be of influence in some way, somehow. So we'll see what happens. I do, you know, I, I wrote a book that was published last March called with uh, Mike Matthews, a uh, professor from West Point, called The Character Edge, which has got some great reviews. I was also the senior commander in Iraq during the drawdown in 2011, and that was an experience in itself. It's pretty much akin to what Afghanistan is going on right now. And I stayed there for 22 months, and I actually saw what actually occurred based on U.S. foreign policy and Iraqi policy that brought in ISIS and and recreated, I call it the rebirth of ISIS, the uh, radical Sunni ideology that was out there. Originally by Zawahiri, you know, the guy with the golden mosque and blew up the mosque and all that sort of thing. Nevertheless, um, there's a whole series and a sequence of events that actually led to that. And it's a story that hasn't been told and it's worth talking about. So my goal, my next goal in, in that capacity is to write a book that describes the drawdown, what happened during and after the drawdown, what were the policies that led to the rebirth of ISIS, because I, I was there all the way when Ramadi fell, Fallujah fell, Hawija fell, and I left two months before Mosul fell. And so it was pretty interesting just to see all of that and see how foreign policy led to that, those sorts of uh, consequences. And we'll, we'll add a link in the show notes for this episode to the character edge. When his next book comes out, we'll send that out in the newsletter as well. And, and I have to admit, I was secretly hoping when I asked what's next that you were going to say just, golf in time with grandkids because, you know, God knows you've had so much done in the last five decades, um, you know, hoping you get a little bit of downtime to actually in- enjoy uh, the-, the freedom that you've helped create. Yeah, well, my, my handicap did drop already, Mark. But, <laughs> but we are moving in that direction. I, I have this belief that if you move to Florida, you, you, you knock a few strokes off just just in the move. I always like to leave the last question open ended and clearly for guests, you know, an, an hour here was was just barely enough to scratch the surface of your experience. But I want to just open up anything we, we haven't covered that you'd want to leave with listeners or just any final words that you'd like to share with them. One thing I think that's uh, tremendously important for leaders is the ability to build teams. And I had a great experience. I was the senior evaluator at the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, where brigade-level commands, commanded by O6s, would go through. And it was really a laboratory of leadership. And I saw some great leaders, and I saw some not-so-good not so leaders. But the ones who really built the best team were the ones that really empowered their subordinates to to serve with excellence. And I define excellence as serving and operating to the upper level of your potential. So if you perform on any level, your performance would be, just think of from, from your math days, on a bell-shaped curve. And your performance overall is average, right in the middle. That's your comfort zone. That's where you know you know what will happen and what you can expect. But if you're going to live a life of excellence, you got to get out of your comfort zone and you got to go two standard deviations to the right on that bell-shaped curve. That's going to put you in uncomfortable and unfamiliar places and you're likely to make mistakes. So here's what's tremendously important for leaders. Leaders must set the command climate that encourages people to go into those areas they're uncomfortable with in order for them to exercise initiative that will benefit the organization but knowing when they do so, they'll make mistakes. And it's the commander's responsibility to underwrite, to, to create the climate that will underwrite that mistake as not a mistake, 
but as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to get better. It's like breaking a bone. If you break a bone and it heals and it heals correctly, the bone is stronger for when the break occurred than it was before. You know, so that's so when you create a climate that encourages people to get out and to exercise initiative and to learn and to and to benefit the organization as a result. Yeah, you're going to make a mistake, but boss, you're going to want to have to underwrite it. So in, in this evaluation, I would see, you know, like in the evening when they would brief the boss on the activities of the day and what's going to go, go on for the next day, the boss would uplift and edify and encourage people. And you could see it within the entire organization, even junior staff officers and staff non-commissioned officers. They're the ones that wanted to be, be briefed the boss because they wanted to show off what they were doing because they knew that the boss was going to be appreciative and uplifting. And then you go into some command headquarters and it was terrible. It was like ice, you know, and then when it came time to brief the boss, you understood exactly why, because when nobody wanted to brief them. So the senior staff officer by default is the one that had to brief them. And then you knew why exactly, because as soon as you brief something that wasn't going right, the boss would rip them apart in a public forum and just, you know, like stabbing them right in the middle of the chest. And so so they did only what they were told and nothing more, because if they did anything more in exercise initiative and made a mistake, they didn't want to go through that experience. So as leaders, create the climate so that you can get your subordinates to be to live lives of excellence. And by living a life of excellence, get out of your comfort zone and, and perform to the upper level of your potential. And then once you consistently perform to the upper level of your potential, guess what? That becomes a new average. And that whole bell-shaped curve now has moved to the right. And so all as a result of a command climate that a really effective leader will be able to put in place. It's just, I, I love I love that. And in contrast to the, you know, one of the things I'm taking away from that is the importance of taking risks of being out of your comfort zone, which in my view entails that there will be mistakes, there'll be shortcomings, and kind of, Amidst the backdrop of our conversation of social media, it's just interesting for me to, to ponder after our conversation of the high ramifications of any perceived mistake. And yet mistakes are so vital for growth and learning and development. And so I just appreciate that, that sense of like pushing, pushing one's limits and creating an environment of leadership where people can take risks and can fail because that's what's required for those bones to mend and grow back stronger. General, I know we're at time. I'm so incredibly grateful for your time today, for your perspective and for your service, 43 years and continuing to serve. Thank you so much for joining us today on Beyond the Uniform. Honored to be with you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Surface, surface, surface. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. 
third of all donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.